what we've seen with the racism taboo is it's been continually expanding, right? So even now saying anyone can make it in America, you know, some people now, I mean, critical race theorists are now saying that that's a microaggression, right? So the, the, the meaning of this term has just been growing and growing and growing. And one of the earliest areas certainly was was immigration. I mean, because that was already already becoming off limits in the sort of 70s and 80s. That's you know, one of the earliest areas. Uh, but and of course, this this is one of the reasons. In fact, we see the rise of the populist right is the mainstream parties shied away from this. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and joining me, as always, is my good friend and collaborator, Mr. Jonathan Astro. Ricky. I got to be honest with you. I'm all a flutter, okay? I'm, <laughs> I'm a flutter. Why, why? Because tonight we have a an amazing guest. Uh, uh, Eric Kaufman is going to talk to us. And if you had told me that uh, when I was listening to this man talk what two years ago or something like on a, on on, uh, on 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 a podcast that he'd be, we would be talking to him. I would not believe you. Okay. Well, it's happening. It's real. It's, it's going down. It's going down tonight. All right. See you on the other side. Eric Kaufman is Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He is the author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities. He's an editor of the journal Nations and Nationalism. He's written for the New York Times, the Times of London, uh, Financial Times, New Newsweek, International Foreign Policy and Prospect Magazines. Eric, welcome to the New Flesh. Great to be here. Thanks very much. Well, now I have a question. When you attend a wedding and the couple seated you next next to you says, what do you do? And you reply, I study white ethnic majorities. How far does the conversation usually go after that? <laughs> well, I usually sort of couch it in some euphemisms to sort of break them in slowly, right? Um, you know, the thing is, when you explain it to people, you know, once once people understand what you're actually doing, then it's not too bad. But yeah, just on the surface, we've been so conditioned to sort of seeing that as radioactive that, that you know, um, people just kind of shrink away. But but actually, I find that, that once you engage them in the wider discussion, they're, they're fine. Well, I, I had this other <laughs> thought, but I had this other thought just before as well, that it might actually get you some, uh, you know, sort of a mistaken identity plaudits initially, if you if you ask the right person and they light up and they say, oh, you study whiteness. Oh, isn't it terrible? And you go, oh, um, not that whiteness. It's a different kind that I study. <laughs> well, that's that's really an interesting question because um, back in 1998, uh, when I was sort of just starting out, um, there was a book called Critical White Studies that came out by one of the critical race theory, one of the authors of the book on critical race theory, Richard Delgado was one of the editors. And I reviewed that book in, a, in an academic journal. And the, the, the interesting thing was that at that time, I was interested in ethnic majorities who had been completely neglected in the literature. And I was coming at it from that angle and they were coming at it from, you know, white people are awful angle. And at that time, there was just a, a promise that this was going to be a new chapter in being able to understand ethnicity more broadly. Uh, and so, so actually, that's one of the reasons I was asked to review it. <laughs> but if so you had said what... back then, if you had said, this book's amazing, I'm 100% sold, you could be making $30,000 a speech right now. 
I, I agree. I, I need some buzzwords though, too, though, like Robin D'Angelo, but it's not, <laughs> you, you got to sort of cook it up with some buzzwords, I think. Mm. Well, I, I'm interested to know wh why it's so hard to talk about immigration and ethnicity. Um, yeah. At, at, and p people get quite nervous about, about this topic. Do you find you have to choose your words carefully when you talk about these topics? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a result of the taboos around race that and racism that have emerged since the mid-60s in Western societies. And to some degree, the boundaries of what is racism have continued to expand and to emerge. And what they do is it it's sort of that anything that's associated or might be associated with race or racism is immediately radioactive as well. And so then you get this growing zone of, uh, of toxicity, which shuts down lots of important conversations, right? So, so that's sort of what, what occurs. And, and I think you see that very clearly in the politics around the issue. Mm. Well, you, you cover some controversial topics. Have, have people tried to cancel you since you've published White Shift? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Although I would say the cancel attempts are less specifically about white shift, which interestingly hasn't created a whole lot of, I don't think I got a lot of blowback directly out of the book because most people didn't read it. And 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 it was actually received reasonably well in the sort of center, center right of the um, media spectrum. But I think it's more, it's more around things that radical students can digest and get their hands on, like you know, if I'm in a talk, uh, I, I was in a talk and I think it was 2018. That was the first sort of open letter I had. And a bunch of us had for having a debate about um, whether there's a there's a sort of tension between is rising diversity uh, a potential threat to the West was sort of I can't remember the exact title, but they sort of got all worked up about a title so they could digest something like a title because that's a sort of quick soundbite they can then retweet. Um, so it's lots of those little things, I would say, where they can seize on a few words and spin them, um, but not in, in terms of having to read something substantial, then, then that's too much for them. <laughs> but yes, I have, I have had, you know, I've had sort of, I've been in, had a couple of open letters, some of which are not just directed against me, but against, let's say, the people that we were having the debate with, which included a, you know, an Afro-Caribbean individual, a sort of white female leftist, uh, sort of another liberal. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. The, 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 but but anyway, we had that. And then I've had sort of every year there's a radical student society that seems to try to have a go at doing a tweet thread, although they got badly ratioed last time. So maybe they won't this year. <laughs> well, let's talk about your substantial book. Would you mind, before we move on to, to you know, dip into some of the uh, specifics, would you mind giving us a brief rundown of White Shift uh, before we go on? Yeah, so this sort of emerged out of what was happening post-2014, you know, where you had, in the 2014 European elections, 30% or so of voters voting for Le Pen and, and UKIP and, and the People's Party in Denmark. And then you had uh, uh, Brexit and Trump. Uh, and, and in the context of that and understanding that, I mean, I'm, I'm a database political scientist, and I was noticing really that that it was pretty much all about attitudes to immigration and and sort of cultural psychological factors that were predicting who was going to vote for one of these parties or for Trump. And the pattern looked pretty similar country after country. Uh, and it really wasn't about um, economics and people being economically left behind, unemployed, poor. Uh, that was, if anything, a very small part of the picture. So the first point behind the book is that 
the decline of ethnic majorities and ethno-demographic shifts um, are absolutely central to understanding the new uh, right-wing populism that's emerging and also the polarization uh, that's emerging in, in many countries. Um, so the white shift 1.0 really is just our century, this decline. So if you, if you look at Canada, the US and New Zealand, for example, they're all projected to become so-called majority minority societies uh, by around 2050. And for the main immigrant receiving Western European countries, that's the end of the century, towards the end of the century. And those are massive shifts. And, and I think we would be uh, kidding ourselves if we don't think that's going to have political ramifications. Um, and, and the only place where you've had something like it in the past, in recent times, which is the U.S. losing its uh, white Anglo-Protestant majority around 1920, uh, was accompanied by you know, major populist ructions and a reordering in many ways of politics. Uh, or, or in Britain, in, in certain locations like the Glasgow area, the Liverpool area, where you had heavy Irish Catholic migration, you, had, you saw, saw echoes of the similar kind of thing. So yeah, that's really the first part of the book is how this is going to reshape our politics. Um, the people who are sort of welcoming or at least neutral about that change are going to be on one side and the people who are opposing that change or want it slowed down will be on another. Uh, and that's exactly what we're seeing, by the way, the political parties. If you take the Labour and Tory party in Britain, they have pretty much the same class composition. If anything, the Tory voters might even be a bit more working class. I mean, that would just be unheard of prior to 1997. Um, and that's another, and, and Republicans and Democrats were seeing similar things. So that that's the sort of uh, the first part of the book where it's very empirical and it's very much talking about what's happened. Uh, the second part of the book is more going ahead and saying, well, okay, where does this go to longer term? And that's where I look at this idea of the emergence of a kind of mixed race majority that I'm arguing will more or less identify with, with the symbols, myths, and memories of the ex existing white uh, ethnic majority. Um, and so that sort of very much takes us into the second part of the book. But that's the white shift 2.0. White shift 1.0 is really what we're, what we're living through, which is this major uh, convulsion caused by the decline of ethnic majorities. Well, since, since you published that book, uh, we, we've seen a global pandemic and, and now, uh, you know, a bona fide hot war in Europe. Um, have these events changed any of your ideas broadly in terms of uh, the changes we're seeing culturally, do you think? Um, yeah, I, I don't think they have changed anything that I've argued. I mean, I wouldn't revise any of my arguments. What I would say is, however, that the if you, if you think about populist politicians and technocratic politicians, the technocratic established politicians in some ways have been lucky, and this sounds a bit odd, but in some ways, they've been lucky that the kinds of problems that have been thrown up in the last few years are problems that technocrats, people trust technocrats to, to deal with. So a pandemic requires advanced healthcare and systems to uh, control a virus. Um, an economic slowdown and inflation require technocrats to manage that properly. Um, a war requires people who know about foreign policy and it directs attention outside the country. Uh, or in the case of Britain, managing economically managing a successful Brexit also requires technocratic competence. All of those things play to the strengths of technocrats. Uh, economic problems also, I think, play to the strengths of the established technocratic order. So right now, I think we're actually in a period that doesn't favor 
uh, the populist right. And even though we're in that period, the populist right is still doing relatively well. I mean, they've slipped a few points in Germany and a few points elsewhere, but they're doing somewhat better in France, although there are other factors going on there and in the United States. So what I'd argue is that once the, you know, assuming the Ukraine thing and the COVID thing and the economic thing are dealt with in a number of years, I don't know how, how long this will take. Um, and we're, we will then be back to the kind of situation we were in in 2014 when we had the populist explosion. And so I think that when things are humming along and, of course, planes are flying, that means immigration is, is quite substantial. People's attention drifts from material problems to cultural problems. That's when you get populism rising. And so I would expect uh, when these things pass that we're going to see another rise. Well, sorry to put you on the spot, but you, you did yeah. say the word populism. So what would you be able to define populism for our audience? I mean, it is a broad term, so maybe give us what we need to start talking about the, these shifts that we're seeing. Yeah, very very crudely, it's a kind of anti-elitism. I, if I'm to put it in one sentence, um, sort of an anti-elitist uh, politics. It could be uh, a new party like UK Independence Party or the uh, Front National in France when it emerged. It could be a new leader like Donald Trump as a populist leader, or it could just be a style. So it could be an existing politician like an Orban using a, a populist language like the people and the elites or, you know, talking about threats to the people. So it's all of those things. But it's the, the, the sort of common thread is a kind of anti-elite, anti-establishment um, uh, style of politics. And and now, of course, that is just as easily, uh, it's as much of a leftist thing as it is a, a rightist thing. And in fact, if you look at survey data out of Britain or the US, you'll see that uh, people who vote for, you know, the far left are just as anti-elite as people who vote for the far right. It's just that they have a different elite in mind. And, and, and to some degree, the voters for the right-wing populist parties are more focused on the uh, cultural elite and on on the bureaucratic elite and those on the um, populist left are more focused on the capitalist elite. So populism is one of these things that really can adapt itself to many different ideological stripes. But one thing I would say is that the, the sort of national populism where it allies with uh, conservative nationalism is the brand that has been most successful recently in the West. More successful, I would argue, than the populist left even though the populist left, Bernie Sanders and, and Jeremy Corbyn and others have had their innings, but I don't think that's been as as, as successful as the uh, conservative version. So just to be clear, we're saying that Viktor Orban's Fidesz party is is more of a right populist movement, and you, you said it. So Bernie and uh, who was the other one? Uh, well, Bernie, on the, on the Bernie list. Sanders, or, or uh, Jeremy Corbyn, or, or um, Corbyn. Podemos in Spain. Um, those are the kinds of movements I'm thinking about on the, on the populist left. Uh, Syriza in Greece. Uh, yeah, these are, and even to some extent, you'll get a Mélenchon in France right now, um, as an example of a populist leftist. Um, okay. Mm. Well, now, yeah, I, I know that you are trying to bring the nuance and the gray back to our conversations, but <laughs> which I encourage everyone to read, read your book and to, you will definitely get that. But people will be listening to this and asking the question is they'll be saying, so is populism bad or what? They'll be like, it sounds bad, but some, but sometimes it does good, but I feel bad. Am I canceled? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, 
Good questions. And but and you're you know the the thing is a lot of populist movements uh, were necessary. And and you know if you look at the rise of the Democrats in the United States, certain political parties, you could argue the Labour Party. I mean, these were in a way they started out as populist movements of groups that were excluded from the system, concerns that were excluded from the system, and they eventually became now mainstream parties. And and so I think there's definitely a role for groups and concerns that are excluded from the system because the elites perhaps have certain things in common. I mean, elites tend to be better off than most of the populations. That, you know, that's just one obvious one. It might be that the voice of, of working class people is just not heard uh, in on, on the front benches. And so, so, so it's, it's perfectly legitimate to have, I think, populist movements that demand a say at the table. Um, where it tips over, of course, into something negative is where these movements are simply about sound bites and they don't have any policy ideas, or they they characterize their opponents in very stark black and white terms instead of recognizing that there is complexity and you you can't just sort of be super simplistic about uh, very complicated policy problems. I mean, you can certainly have slogans. I think talking about the people and, and a threat to the nation is is. Uh, can can often be legitimate, but I think especially also where you're directing negative sentiment against an outgroup, I think that it becomes uh, it, it's certainly legitimate to point to, uh, let us say, the threat of of Islamist terrorism. Uh, but I think if you're if you're you know talking about Muslims in a broad brush way, I think that's not legitimate. So yeah, I think populism has risks, but it also is important. I think in, in bringing in voices and ideas that have been neglected by the established uh, elites. Well, we're about to have a an election here in a federal election in Australia and I feel like uh there, there there certainly isn't a populist movement going on at the moment. I don't feel unless you know maybe you have some data on that, but I, I just looking at the the coverage and what the candidates are saying it is it's well firstly it's it's the most nothing election in the world <laughs> between right. between our two leaders but it's I, I i just feel like both parties aren't really speaking for the working class and i just wondered how why how and why they're getting away with that right you know well i was going to ask you about i mean what's happening with one nation in in australia which was the kind of popular national populist movement there yeah, well, the, the, you're you're probably aware of this. The, the, you know, One Nation had quite a a large hiatus, sort of, uh, sort of after the '90s when it when it first hit, and it's come back, I think, uh, in the last ten years, uh, much stronger, uh, and it does get uh, quite a bit of coverage, um, but it's it's never been able to to uh, just shake off the uh the brand of being racist after pauline hansen's speech to parliament where she said we're in threat of being swamped by asians so uh there's still this sense uh, especially amongst centrists and people obviously on the left that that just see one nation and particularly pauline hansen that the head of one nation is just being an outright racist so uh and and th they do find uh, pauline herself finds it hard to get media coverage uh, outside of sort of Sky News, which is our uh, sort of right-wing news outlet here and, and other right-wing news outlets. Um, John, what, what do you think? What's your assessment of One Nation? Oh, well, well I, 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 I feel like that they, um, in the 90s, they had that and then they had this comeback and they just subbed in um, Islam for Asians. Did, that was yeah. the new thing when they came back. And then 
the stunts. So she leans into the Pauline Hansen's the leader of the party, and she leans into these stunts of she came into the Senate in a, in a burka, in a full burka. Right. <laughs> so this was this was this is this was a Boy. it's a big it's a bold move and well, um, she she was proving a point about parliamentary security though she was able to get all the way to her seat in parliament uh you know without being checked to see who who was under there i mean that was her that was her point there i think but but i think what happened the, the usual pattern is when uh, a conservative party uh let's say which would be i guess national liberal or you know, if they're in power and they don't address the concerns of a chunk of the electorate, that is typically when a populist party breaks through. But of course, these populist parties, as you rightly mentioned with Hanson, I mean, they're very much tied to the leader. And so they they really go up and their support jumps up and down the way that doesn't doesn't for a mainstream party whose image is tied to their party history and brand. So it would require, you know, you could imagine if one nation came under, you know, if another figure emerges as as the face of one nation who is maybe a little more moderate or um, and the sort of liberal national or has been in power and not addressed some of the identity security issues, then you might expect a breakthrough. Right. That's sort of the pattern that that occurred in, in Europe um, where, you know, you you would have a, a like. If we if say the UK Independence Party really comes comes in quite strongly when the Cameron government in Britain isn't able to lower immigration, isn't really dealing with the European issue the way some voters would want, but but mainly it was about immigration and its inability to control it, and UKIP very much surged on the back of that. So I think that's sort of usually the usually the path I would say in terms of support. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to to see in Australia. I mean, I I sort of think that countries like Australia, New Zealand, maybe to a lesser extent, or to some degree Canada too. But but I think in the these are going to be interesting countries because they've got very high immigration, very rapid ethnic change. But the immigrants are generally middle class, and and you know they don't come in the same way in Europe where there are perhaps greater issues around security and crime. But I still think the debate. Is I, I think something is going to occur at some point uh, in in those countries around this rapid ethnic shifting and the fact that you haven't really had perhaps the kind of debate over the cultural side of immigration that that one might expect. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, in Canada, for example, what you're seeing now is is a, is a an increasing polarization of the uh, electorate in English Canada. If you take a question like immigration, you now see a gap of sort of 50 points between conservative and liberal or NDP voters, which would have been only on the order. So it's it's gone from about 10 or 15 points five years ago to about 50 points. The same thing happened in the U.S. Um, and so I think there's a certain sorting happening. And I think what will happen in Canada, well, if the if the conservatives are not able to do anything about this issue if they get elected, then I think you might see an opening for Bernier's People's Party. Mm. Well, you know, One Nation very much came to the fore on uh, talking about uh, the issues of immigration. Uh, why is any talk of immigration seen as racism? Well, I think because uh, most immigrants tend to be of a different ethnicity and, and, and ethnic and racial background from the majority of the uh, from the ethnic majority in most countries. I would say, I mean, that's to some degree, that's a slightly less true in, in, say, Europe, particularly in Britain, where you had a lot of East Europeans. But 
Certainly in North America and Australia, uh, New Zealand, there's a big difference. And so simply by virtue of the fact that there's a correlation between what a typical immigrant looks like and a typical member of the host society looks like, uh, you can then sort of on the back of that uh, affix a racist charge. And what we've seen with the racism taboo is it's been continually expanding, right? So even now saying anyone can make it in America, you know, some people now, I mean, Critical race theorists are now saying that that's a microaggression, right? So uh, the, the meaning of this term has just been growing and growing and growing. And one of the earliest areas certainly was, was immigration. I mean, because that was already uh, already becoming off limits in the sort of 70s and 80s. You know, that's one of the earliest areas. Uh, but, and of course, this, this is one of the reasons, in fact, we see the rise of the populist right is the mainstream parties shied away from this. So the, the mainstream Swedish conservatives were, were scared to touch the numbers question. And so the Sweden Democrats were able to say, hey, we're, we're willing to talk about it. And they shoot up at one point to 25 percent in the polls on the back of this issue. So it, it's enabled the rise. The fact this taboo existed created a market, a, a, a sort of vacuum that populist right entrepreneurs were able to fill. Um, but that taboo very much remains in place. You know, you can definitely see. Uh, and in the U.S., you see that at any time the Republicans go near immigration, there are great cries of racism, you know, just just for the idea of wanting to police your own border. So in, you're being a, a numbers guy. What What is the attitude towards immigration in the West? What, what do the numbers say, generally speaking? Um, it varies. You know, I'd say in Europe... It's sort of it's a majority, something like sixty percent or so. I, I'm, this is crudely approximating, right? Because there's variation across countries. You know, something like sixty percent would want lower numbers. It, it might be a little higher in some countries, a little lower in others. Um, in in Canada, it's it's sort of forty to fifty percent. In the United States, it's around forty. Um, you know, Aust- Australia, New Zealand is, I think, similar to Canada. It's in that sort of sort of 40 to 50% range. I haven't seen the latest numbers. What I would say about immigration attitudes, just the straight standard question, uh, should fewer immigrants be admitted the same or more? Um, that Your answer to that question is heavily, heavily tied to your ideology uh, on the left-right spectrum or on the liberal conservative spectrum at, in terms of self-description. And that is in turn heavily dis- uh, tied to your answer to certain psychological questions around things and being better in the past, um, your views on, on diversity and difference. Uh, and, and so there's a really strong kind of attitudinal substrate to views on immigration. And, and that's why actually when immigration rises and falls, it, it doesn't affect the question on attitudes very much. So during the European migrant crisis, very little movement uh, in Europe on that question of should more immigrants be admitted or fewer. The difference is that that 60% who want fewer, um, instead of immigration being their number five issue after the economy and healthcare and, and other things, uh, was number one or two. So the what's called salience or importance of immigration amongst people who were already saying we want less immigration rose. And that's what pushed the populist parties to higher numbers. Um, but very, you know, at, at heart, this is basically based on psychology. And so what we've seen in the U.S. case, ideology and psychology, in the U.S. case in Canada as well, you've seen a big increase in the number of people saying immigration should be increased. Like that was always single digits in America amongst, say, white voters. 
amongst white uh, left-wing voters now, those numbers are kind of around 60%, like staggering. Um, never before seen. And this is very much ideological. So people's answer to that question, I think, should be seen as tied to their general view on the world, which is psychological and ideological. Well, I'd, I'd like to ask you, why is assimilation such a dirty word today? Like, what what happened to the idea <laughs> right. of, of of the melting pot? You know, we used to talk about the melting pot. Do, do, do people are still pe are people still on board with the melting pot? Is that something that that people still secretly love? Well, I think the population is. There's a lot of support for it in the population. You see that in surveys about whether people you know should fit in, and and there's a lot of support for it. What I would say is that in the uh, elite institutions, it's become a sort of dirty word because there are connotations there. And again, this is you have to understand that the disciplines that study things like cultural assimilation are 100 percent left. I mean, essentially, they have no conservatives in them. They are a bubble and they have a very high share of cultural far leftists, for example, people who'd be sympathetic to things such as equity and diversity statements as a requirement for a job. You know, two thirds of them would support that or more. Uh, and so you've got a, a culture in these in these disciplines, which is very sympathetic to any claims on behalf of historically marginalized groups. So any time anyone could make a claim that, hey, some hypothetical member of a historically marginalized group might be offended by this, then all of a sudden it's it's pushed into the sort of canceled bin. Uh, and, and what that means simply is that, yeah, assimilation, it was seen as something that was, oh, well, you know, it could be associated with the high pressure intolerance and assimilation that existed in, in the United States in the 1920s, and therefore it's awful and we can't talk about assimilation. And so, yeah, th th that is... It's been caricatured to a great extent. Now, there has been the odd academic paper that has said, well, you know, we got to dis distinguish between voluntary uh, people voluntarily choosing to assimilate, you know, that that's that's OK. And, and then that paper getting more or less roasted or, or at least uh, let's just say that nobody really engaged with it in a serious way. So, yeah, it is a very narrow discussion that's occurring uh, in academia around these issues. It doesn't reflect, I think, what the public wants. A democratic president said, "I won't do the accent. Uh, ask not what your country. I, I ask not what your country can do for you, but uh, what you can do for your country." Uh, what about the idea of citizenship as a framework for cohesion? Now, maybe, maybe we don't ask enough of our citizens in the West. I think that there's a legitimate point there that we could ask more of our citizens, and that might help with cohesion. However, I don't think that what we're going through is fundamentally an issue of nation states and citizenship. Um, I think it is fundamentally an issue of the ethnic majorities that are that underpin most nation states in the West declining. And so even if you had, I think it would be to the good to have a national service or to have uh, more expectations on citizenship, but you'll very quickly run into problems of values which divide people. Um, and the progressive side will want to push certain values around cosmopolitanism, for example, which might jar against the conservative values. And so it's very difficult to get an agreement on what the values are that the citizens should be inducted into. And I think it's tricky to force everybody into onto the same page and when you have a highly divided society. And I'm not sure it's the right way to go. I think that, you know, I think my own view on this is that without a sort of melting pot ethnic majority that people are intermarrying and mixing into, 
without that, when you move away from that, I think you're inevitably going to move towards a different kind of politics that is some, in some ways more fractured along ideological lines and perhaps on ethnic lines. Although, uh, although what's interesting in the West is it isn't quite fracturing along ethnic lines. It's much more along ideological lines because of the commitment of a chunk of the Western, particularly well-educated population to diversity as a value. That's sort of really led to this in interaction with the growing actual diversity of these societies that's producing this very powerful ideological split. So yeah, I, I, I think citizenship is great, but I don't think it'd be anything like the glue necessary to deal with the kind of issues we're dealing with. It, it, in the Anglo, Anglosphere, we've been told for some time now that, that, that nationalism and its distant cousins are beyond the pale. Like flag waving is, is probably racist and, and patriotic symbols of any kind are, are to be avoided lest they offend somebody. So what are we to make of the fervent uptake of Ukrainian nationalism, uh, in some cases by the same people who have been in charge of lecturing us, mind you? Well, I mean, it shows the, the importance, I think, of the nation um, in defending a value like liberalism. And in, in a way, Ukrainian nationalism is um, defending liberalism. It's defending uh, the ideas of Europeanism, and, and which is interesting, right? So, so you can see in Ukraine how Europeanism and nationalism are very much going together. In a way, in Brexit, they went in different directions. And so, yeah, I think you could see. I, I think a lot of the a lot of people who would defend the 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 nation as a bulwark of liberalism that it, it is in fact necessary in order to generate the cohesion. Uh, which produces the preconditions for liberal democratic societies, and and it, it produces the co cohesion necessary to support a welfare state. The idea that you would share forty percent or fifty percent of your income with strangers, uh, you know, to build common things is is wouldn't make any sense if we were all cosmopolitan individuals. So yeah, I think that shows it very very clearly. I mean, I think in the West you have you know some. Not academia, but if you if you look at the media, you know some on sort of left liberal media will defend a very thin version of sort of citizenship based uh, patriotism in a very limited way. I think um, so. I don't think it's fully beyond the pale the way that, for example, talking about ethnic majorities is. But you're right that the instant reaction on. Uh, particularly in universities, and is to be sort of suspicious of nationalism and to associate it with only with negative things, um, mm. which is which is whereas you know you wouldn't get that reaction if you're talking about socialism, even though if you were to look at the historical record, there's as, as much blood on, and violence associated with one as with the other. Uh, so it is a curious um, double standard that's being applied. Yeah. Yes. Well. Yeah. You you mentioned double standard there. Like I I wonder what what uh, all the very left-leaning people in the UK who, who, who put, you know, have painted the Ukrainian flag on themselves or on their cheeks or on their social media, you know. <laughs> on what, their naked body. Would, on their naked body. <laughs> what, what, what would happen if Putin came in, took over the Ukraine and just started taking down statues and saying, you know, the, these guys were racist, you know, these statues that the Ukrainians used to have, you know, historical figures, they're all racist, we're, we're taking them down. You know, what do you think the reaction would be? Well, you, 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 yeah, I mean, obviously they would oppose uh, statue removal. I mean, but, 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 but what you put, you make a really interesting point there about, you know, this, this language of people being called Nazis, right? So, 
One of the things Putin's been doing is, is calling the Ukrainian nationalists Nazis. And one of the things Justin Trudeau did with the truckers was to call them Nazis. And in, in both situations, you, know, you have a tiny, extremely tiny in the case, certainly of the, of the Canadian truckers, but also in the case of the Ukrainians, you know, uh, but it's the same tactic that's being used to smear in both cases, and they don't see the irony of doing that. Um, is it both of the people you mentioned are on Twitter? Do you think that's got something to do with it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Twitter. Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see maybe. Um, we'll see what happens after Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Well, you know, but but obviously the horror of, of many people is this idea of ethno-nationalism. Uh, is that something we should be worried about? Is that a genuine concern in in Western countries? Ethno nationalism. Um, well, I th I don't think it is a, a genuine concern. I mean, I think that you know, if you're talking about a nationalism which says if you're not a member of the ethnic majority, you're second class, or uh, we want to expel you, then clearly that is. Uh, a danger, and there's no doubt about so that. I'm not advocating uh, for this. No, no, I know you're not. Uh, I know you're not. <laughs> this is not. I, I just wondered if you were like, which, what kind of podcast did I just get myself? No, in? no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But but it's very. I think it's very important to define these things precisely because people will often just say, oh, they want to reduce immigration. They're ethno nationalists, right? So there's again that creep. What what um, Nick Haslam, the psychologist, calls concept creep—the meaning of a term just growing and growing into its, you know meaning something completely different from what it was intended—and um, that's the same with ethno-nationalism. There's almost this kind of ooh, everything and any time you have any expression of uh, a desire for slower, slower ethnocultural change, that that's somehow ethno-nationalism. I think it's, so. So what I try and do is distinguish between. Uh, a view which says if you're not a member of the ethnic majority, you're not an equal member of the nation, which is eth which is sort of ethno-nationalism from something that says, well, this country's had a certain ethnic mix. We don't want that to change as quickly. So let's lower immigration. That's what I would call ethno-traditional nationalism. And I think it's perfectly legitimate. Um, it's And to, to try and what you see on the left is an attempt to conflate the idea of we want to slow down the change to we with oh, we want to be pure and expel anyone who isn't us and treat anyone who isn't us as second-class citizens, right? So that distinction, that shade of gray doesn't exist in the leftist mind. You're either open or you're closed in their view. It's, it's a very binary worldview. You can't be slower and faster. And actually, what I think, if we're ever going to get past the kind of polarization that, that that's gripping Western societies, we need to be able to talk about slower and faster and not just, oh, you're with us or you're against us. Um, and I think on the left, you very much find that very black and white thinking, which says, uh, no, if you're concerned at all about ethnocultural change, at all, if you're uncomfortable with any rate, then you're a racist and you're closed. And, and it's that kind of demonization and, and sort of uh, binary thinking that I think is leading us towards the kind of conflicts uh, that we're seeing in Western society. Well, we'll definitely pivot to that mindset shortly. But just before we leave this idea of, of ethno-nationalism, now, I don't want to engage in whataboutism because that's people people don't like that, all right? They've been told that that's not <laughs> what we should do. Yeah, and but we there are countries uh some of whom are our allies who this is this is perfectly usual. Um and but this this is the how they how they do it. Like, you know, uh perhaps one of our uh well, is it fair to say that um that uh, China engages in uh, an ethno-nationalism? 
Yes, yes, absolutely. There's clearly the Uyghurs are being treated as second-class citizens. Yeah. So I was just going to say, isn't the so isn't the West generally speaking trying to do a little more than some other regions to avoid this kind of thing? Yeah, and and there's no question that uh, ethno-nationalism. Uh, when you veer towards pure, you know, wanting some kind of pure society or or a, a hierarchical society, that that is racism, and that is, you know, you you want to avoid that. And that's a risk, of course, in um, in nationalism, in majority ethnicity, that it can veer in that direction. But the thing to remember, of course, is that you know. 70% of the world has an ethnic majority, 80% of the world has a, a, a majority group over 40%, right? So this is kind of the, this is more or less the common situation in most countries of the world. And, and we don't have a Holocaust going on in, in every country of the world. So essentially, there are very unusual circumstances required to produce uh, a Holocaust like the one my uh, ancestors fled from, which is why I'm here speaking to you today. I mean, I think that and also, there have been studies done of genocide, for example, that look at the predictors of genocide. And the predictors of genocide do include an exclusivist ideology. But what the the systematic study of genocide, and there's been one sort of post-1945 by Barbara Harf, uh, which I think is the best one that I've seen, um, does not indicate that either nationalist or ethno-nationalist type ideologies are more likely to lead to genocide than sort of say, socialist or other kinds of ideology, right? So, so it's any ideology, whether it could be religion, could be socialism, could be ethno-nationalism, that comes to take a very binary exclusivist view of the world where there are, there's us and them, they are the enemies, they must be exterminated, right? So, but what we seem to have arrived at in the West is this view that, oh no, it's only one kind of ideology that is uniquely dangerous, which is the nationalist one. And that's actually not true. All ideologies, when taken to an extreme, are extremely dangerous. And, and so that point is, is rarely understood. And so if we're talking, if we're going to talk about the dangers of nationalism, we, we should be equally vigilant about the dangers of socialism, for example, or, or any other ism. And we're not doing that. We're, we're treating one ideology in a very benign way. You know, you can wear a nice Che Guevara T-shirt and that scene is great. <laughs> so, so there is a very much a double standard that's that's uh, when it comes to dealing with these ideologies in the West. Whereas, if you were to go to Eastern Europe or parts of Latin America, they have a much more reactive anti-socialist, uh, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing either, because it shuts down important conversations. I, my understanding in Colombia is if you if you're on the left, you're accused of being FARC and shut down. And, and that, so, so I don't think that's healthy either. But what I think is the case is that in the West, we've got this sort of developed this very strong hypersensitivity around, uh, you know, nationalism. And, 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 and that, that, I think, is skewing our discourse. So just before we, 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 we move on, uh, I just wanted to get your, your definition of multivocalism, because this is something you bring up in the book. Yeah, so there's a lot of talk, I think, about um, different models of immigrant incorporation. You've got multiculturalism, which is each group more or less preserving its own uh, ethnicity, looking back to its homeland, but yet having a common civic political identity. And Or you've got uh, uh, more of a kind of, let's call it civic national model, where there may be some common symbols around the state or, or British values or Australian values or whatever these are. Um, 
What I'm sort of arguing with multivocalism is that actually what we need is something that's neither of those things. What we really need is is that people connect to the nation in different ways, um, depending on their perhaps on their ethnicity, on which ideology, which region of the country they are. And so you might be in England, you might be in Britain and you might have five, six, seven generations on the land and you identify to your Britishness through your many generations English ancestry. Um, or you might be somebody who is, is in a city, uh, you might be Pakistani Muslim in your background, but you identify with the diversity of Britain and it's, let's say, it's economic success. Well, you're identifying with different things, but you're as long as you're identifying with Britain, I think that's okay. I think that's the problem I, I think occurs when you try and force everybody into one onto one hymn sheet that says, no, you can't identify with Britain through your many generations ancestry on the land or through anything that's sort of cultural, ethnic, religious, whatever. Um, or, or no, you can't identify through diversity and, and, and multiculturalism. I, I, my, my view is you could, hey, I mean, if you want to identify either way, that's fine. But I think what we've had is a very much biased discussion where certain kinds of attachment are ruled out of bounds. Um, and with multivocalism, all that means is if you take something like the British flag, it means something different to an Ulster Unionist, uh, to, to someone who's on the right, someone who's on the left, uh, or a mod. <laughs> and that's fine. So people are, are reading whatever meaning they want to read into that flag. And I think that just allows for a deeper connection that's more authentic. Whereas something like British values, where it's a, these six values, which people may or may not agree with, they interpret in different ways, but that seemed to be just more shallow and more artificial. Um, so well, I, I guess, yeah. I was just going to say, I think we're all thinking the same thing when we look at that, that flag, white supremacy, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, well, I don't know. Right? I mean, it's it, it, it depends. The room, I mean, I, I don't <laughs> if you were in a in a sort of left leaning gathering, then that's the first thing they'll they'll think about. Yes, because they'll just react instantly, uh, because that's sort of the the way that they've been trained to think is always in terms of you know everything's a slippery slope to jackboots and Nazis and, and genocide, right? So that that's sort of the way they think. Uh, but I think no, I think the average person wouldn't read that into something like a union jack but i do think that there's going to be different ways of reading the symbol and i think that's absolutely fine <laughs> so <laughs> well we're we're desperate to talk to you about wokeness on campus but before we do uh i i have an australian based question for you here yeah um we're a pretty low-key country here and and we're not praised for much uh the beaches mainly <laughs> however one thing that that uh that we have been praised for by the UK government in recent times is uh, both our points-based immigration system and our policies about illegal boats arriving on our shores. Can you tell us what is it about our, our policies that, that captivated the Conservatives? Well, I think the stop the boats policy, because you had a rising volume of illegal immigration and the policy managed to sort of stem that. Um, it, it, you know, Australia found a way to sort of stop what, what looked like it could become a runaway flow. Um, and in fact, that influenced, even though they wouldn't necessarily admit it, also the European approach uh, in terms of the migrant crisis, the Turkey deal, and, and deals to some degree with Libya as well. Although those are much less, in, in many ways, less secure than the one 
Australia runs. So I think that if you look at the recent announcement in, in Britain now, they're, they're going to be offshoring to Rwanda or Libya. That's sort of roughly the plan. And that's very much influenced by Australia. Now, of course, Australia is culturally much closer to Britain than almost any country. And so Britain will be more likely to accept a policy idea from Australia than from you know, France, for example. So it's that's part of this as well. Uh, and likewise, I think with the points system, I think with the point system, even though I think actually they're there, the point system isn't all it's cracked up to be. I, you know, being Canadian, I think we have a very similar sort of system as you do. Um, but I think in Britain, this idea was well, we have this uncontrolled flow coming in from Europe with because of the uh, European Union free movement, anyone can turn up. And we have perhaps a, a flow of, of asylum seekers, seekers coming across the channel. But boy, what, wouldn't it be great if we could really select and, and control our, our migration flows? Um, now, I think that the issue is, however, that the Brexiteer elite, or at least the elite associated with Boris Johnson, thinks that the immigration issue in Britain is simply an issue of control and quality. And if you can get kind of control over who comes in, then you can have three or 400,000 a year uh, coming in, no problem. Oh, I, I think there are sections of the Brexiteer elite that believe that. I think they're actually wrong, and I think they will be, they are building a problem for themselves, you know, in a few years' time. Um, if Britain is accepting those levels of, of immigration each year, even if they're vetted and point, points-based, my own view is that that is going to lead to the conditions for the rise of another sort of Farage-style movement. Uh, so, because the thing about the point system is, yes, it vets, it certainly vets in terms of um, people having the skills to do well in the society. But what it doesn't do really is, is it, it doesn't affect, it, it does has, there's no sort of cultural basis. So, it, you know, even though, you know, migrants are culturally well adapted in terms of education and skills, the cultural impact in terms of changing neighborhoods, in terms of changing um, character of a country will continue at a fast pace. And this is something that if you look at the opinion surveys, if you look at what drives um, hostility to immigration, and that is one of the major factors. It's, it's around difference and diversity and change. And so this isn't actually addressing the problem. And I, and I think that the, the government is going to sort of learn that the hard way in a number of years if they continue with this level. Um, so I don't think the, the point system is a panacea. And also, of course, there is, you know, your family comes with you and there is, you know, depends on the rules you have for uh, family reunification. The number of people who are actually bringing the precise skills that you need in is only a fraction of the inflow. So I think the point system is very much oversold. Uh, but I think Britain's going to learn that um, over a number of years. Well, yes, let's 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 turn our attention to, to the woke for a moment here. Yeah. Uh, we've heard a little bit about this thing called woke, wokeness or hard left extremism, but, but you say what we're actually seeing is left modernism. Can you explain what that is, what, what the key features of that is? Well, okay. I think it's inter in, important to take this apart. So wokeness has a, a definite, my definition of wokeness is, is, is the sacralization, making sacred um, of historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual identity groups. So you have the making sacred of those of, the, of those three categories in a bit of a hierarchy. I, I still think race comes at the top, um, but, and it's not clear that 
probably sexuality and gender are battling it out for for the second uh, spot on the totem pole. That's wokeness. Uh, But what wokeness is ultimately about is once you buy into that sacredness, what you then say is, well, we have to equalize outcomes across a whole range of desired measures, such as power, wealth, uh, cultural impact across these identity groups. So anytime you have a gap, say men and women or blacks and whites, then that is immediately intolerable. And we have to redistribute through affirmative action uh, or through um, shutting down the speech of the more powerful group in order to arrive at a level playing field. Not a level playing field, sorry, level outcomes. So what it is about is what I call cultural socialism, which is actually, instead of thinking about economic socialism where everyone has the same income, cultural socialism is what all groups have to have the same outcomes of various kinds. So it's an identity-based socialism. Now, the, the, the reason this is left modern is so the ideology behind this ultimately, intellectually, the history is, is what I call left modernism. And that is a fusion of ideas from socialism and ideas from liberalism in a very distinct way. Um, and that gets us to a point where we have this cultural socialist uh, sort of out, outlook on life where everything has to be, any gap is immediately evidence of systemic discrimination, whether that's systemic racism or patriarchy um, or, or whatever. And so the origins of this, if you take it intellectually, if you go back to the early 20th century, you had people who were against tradition, um, who wanted to move from making art about Christianity or even to some extent about landscapes and making art about sort of something abstract and something subversive, shocking. That starts at the end of the 19th century. Daniel Bell's book, Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, is very much the sort of key resource, I think, on outlining the rise of modernism. So it starts to emerge in the early 20th century, takes off. In the 1960s, you you get a mass through the rise of television and the university system. You get this pervading the culture in a much more sustained way than than was the case. But it already had that long lineage going back to the say the young intellectuals in Greenwich Village, New York, 1910s, uh, 1920s, the lost generation, you already had this idea of being against your own tradition. That was already a big thing. Uh, Being against your own ethnic group, uh, make, you know, saying, you know, in the US case in particular, which had the immigration already, uh, saying, you know, these immigrants are more interesting and exotic than we are. And and our Anglo-Protestant Yankee New England kind of culture is boring and repressive and they want to ban alcohol and do all these things. So that was kind of the beginning of being against your own group in modernism. The left side of things was still largely economic. It was largely socialism. Uh, But slowly as we get into the late 1930s, with the anti-communist left emerging, that anti-communist left is very much now talking about fascism and anti-fascism, but rightfully so in a way, because there's a very genuine fascist threat (laughs) in the late 30s. But what happens after that seems to me is that you start to get the rise of this more identitarian leftism. And it's the fusion of that modernism with the identitarian leftism that then brings us to the 60s and you get this explosion And then all of a sudden, the cultural left side of this left modernist equation rises dramatically and metastasizes to the point we're in today, where really almost anything is is 
can be labeled uh, racist or sexist, or at least let's just say that the meaning of those terms has expanded just out of all recognition. Well, to put to put a bow on it, uh, with this statement <laughs> from from John Stewart uh, from um, a couple of weeks ago, qualifies left modernism. Quote: For however sincerely we want to reckon and listen, the truth is. America has always prioritized, capital W, white comfort over black survival, close quote. Yeah, I mean, I think it is um, historically illiterate um, in so many ways. I mean, <laughs> right, but but you're right. It, it is a classic in case. So really the, the issue, a lot of the issues were really between white Protestants and white Catholics or Jews or whatever. But anyway, we, we but but the point is that, yeah, his read of history is through the lens of race. So one of the big three, the top, in a way, on the on the hierarchy, on the totem pole. Um, so, you know, this idea of redistribution of power and, and uh, wealth amongst identity groups is sort of central to what he's talking about. So that is the sort of left side of this left modernism. At the same time, you know, is there a, is there a modernism? Modernism is very much linked to this idea of diversity and change, and thinking diversity and change is great. Now, I suppose you could say, well, in that statement, there was no, there wasn't a lot of modernism. There is a sort of, to the extent that you're attacking your own culture, your own group, that's a sign of how sophisticated you are, and perhaps there's a little bit of that then in what he's saying. But I would say a lot of what what that statement is about is just straight up cultural left. Or cultural socialism, which is about, um, hey, there's a there's a power differential or an income dis- differential, and that's because of systemic racism. Um, and and what I, I would say is that if you go back to the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, the modernist side of the left modernist compound was to the fore. It was more about, hey, explore different cultures. Other cultures are interesting. Um, yes, you were denigrating your own culture a little bit, but it wasn't as much about, I mean, there was certainly a leftist critique there, but it wasn't as strong as it is now. Um, so a Norman Mailer, for example, is a good example of that kind of earlier generation where very interested in, in African-American culture and contrasting that very favorably to white culture, but not necessarily going the distance to say that everything is racist. Um, now we're in a situation where there's sort of Playful modernism, the kind of experimental novelty-seeking modernism is is been eclipsed by this more puritanical cultural leftism. You see it over cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation would have been central to the modernist outlook, whereas um, opposition to cultural borrowing is, is central to the left cultural left outlook because that might be seen as offending a member, a sensitive member of a minority group. And that kind of shows you how there's there is a tension between those two halves. Uh, and I'd say more recently that cultural socialism has really emerged as as dominating over the modernism. Uh, now, Eric, you've you've been on a few college campuses in your time. Uh, can you give us a sense in terms of the numbers of the ideological diversity in your average campus today? Uh, and sure. What's changed since you started tracking this issue? Well, um, I I haven't been tracking it myself, but I can certainly speak to tracking done by others as well as myself over time. I mean, the tracking that we have is to do with the faculty, so the professoriate. The professoriate in the social sciences, let's say in Britain and the United States, in the mid-1960s, we might have had something like three to one left to right amongst the social science, soft social sciences and humanities academics. 
Overall, across the whole university, including engineers and scientists, it was only about one and a half on the left to one on the right in the mid-60s. I mean, can you imagine? One and a half on the left to one on the right across the entire university. Now that looks like it's about six, five or six to one. So it's about three, over three times more uh, on the left compared to the right as, as compared to the mid-1960s. And if we take social sciences and humanities, it's gone from sort of three to one to 14 to one or thereabouts, 12, 13, 14 to one. So even though academia has always leaned left and people always say that, the extent of the lean is dramatically greater today. The, the share of people who don't share an orthodox view on these identity cultural issues uh, is extremely low. That, that's not to say that academics are all in favor of cancel culture. They're not. Actually, cancel culture has only a very thin support base of about one in 10 uh, social science, humanities, academics support these firing campaigns. I mean, amongst the younger academics, it pushes towards one in four, but it's still a minority who support actively firing academics for speech. However, and there's a big however, there is a majority of academics who support things such as race and gender quotas on syllabi uh, or diversity statements as a requirement for applying for a faculty position. And even though that's not the same as cancel culture, it's its implications are very illiberal. So if you refuse to sign a, a diversity statement, um, you're not going to be hired for a job you'll be discriminated against. Or if you, for example, um, say this diversity statements are a political litmus test, you could be in big trouble with your department. So there, there are, you know, so what I'm saying is that even though a lot of academics aren't overtly authoritarian, they support these nice sounding pro-diversity policies that are authoritarian. Uh, now, in terms of the student bodies, student bodies are more diverse. So if academia has maybe got five to 10% uh, conservatives, the student body in the top 150 US universities is about 20, 22% conservative. So it's, it's several orders of magnitude higher than the, than the staff, but it's still a distinct minority. You know, so it's about, in the US case, I think it's about 55% on the left versus for students versus 22 on the right. Uh, so two and a half to one for the student body, and it's about 14 to one for the academic body and the social sciences. That's kind of where we are. <laughs> so, so it sounds like, yeah, because I've worked in the creative fields, and and to me, in these rooms, it is just it's the left and the left, it's center, it's it's moderates, and and a bunch of loony crazies, and the moderates, we don't say anything. We're just sort of uh, thinking about the lunch break and getting on with it. And these crazies take over the whole thing. And now we find ourselves in a situation where common sense itself has been, uh, I don't know, eradicated. And these people have the floor. Yeah, they, they, there's a bubble. And within bubbles, there have been a number of studies, Cass Sunstein's on conformity, within bubbles, crazier ideas tend to spread. So he, I think he's done experiments where if you have three judges who are all on the right or all on the left, the decisions you get are more extreme than if you have two conservative judges and one who is on the left. Even though the two to one will always prevail, they have the majority. The fact you have got another voice in the room will moderate the decision. And, and there have been other experiments that show that. So once you get a bubble that's homogenous, the crazier ideas move towards the center. And especially when you have taboos. Uh, so if you oppose 
anything around equity and diversity, then the taint of racism sticks to you, right? Or, or sexism if it's gender-based. Uh, and that shuts down opposition very effectively. Um, and so, yeah, you're right that these sorts, I've been in a number of situations in committee meetings where I've been the only one who's been sort of speaking up against this stuff. And, you know, you could hear a pin drop in the room. And I'll only hear later on that people supported what I was saying. Uh, but that's kind of an example. But the one thing I'd say is I don't think it's just the spiral of silence. I think a lot of those moderate left academics are instinctively sympathetic to anything that would protect a historically marginalized member of, of one of these identity groups. And, and so something like a diversity statement or a quota, they'll, they'll go for those out of just, they have this sort of instinctive sympathy and they will look the other way at the authoritarian implications of what they're proposing. Mm. Well, what would you say to someone who says all this work stuff on, on campus and now pretty much everywhere else, uh, the gender nonsense, that the house of white supremacy, that it's just a phase, it'll sort itself out? Uh, I think that's incredibly naive. No, I think this is, I think we're just getting started. Um, and just because the New York Times or Harper's Magazine runs an editorial against cancel culture doesn't just, you know, the mainstream media can, can say whatever it likes. Yes, the media is largely against this, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in institutions, it isn't going to make headway. And of course, if you look at this, as I've done in a number of studies generationally, it's generation, you know, the, the new generations coming in, millennials and Gen Z, are way more cultural socialist. They are, for example, a question like, should James Damore, the Google engineer, have been fired for his, his memo on gender, questioning the company's gender policy? I mean, you're getting majorities of the uh, under 25s, like almost two thirds in Britain and the US, from what I've seen, uh, supporting his firing, and and only about a, one third of those over fifty. So and even when you compare, like a far leftist under thirty, a far leftist over fifty, it's a big big difference. So this is baked into the generational cake. I think we should be expecting to see this only rise and rise uh, in the, in the coming years. And uh, what do you think should be done in in your view to to tackle this? I, I know you suggested legislation. Is that is that the answer? Yeah, I, I I don't think that you can rely on you know an alternative Twitter, an alternative uh, YouTube, alternative universities. This sort of libertarian idea that uh, creative destruction, the good drives out the bad. Universities are not markets. Um, the, the reputations and donations, and and there's so many reasons why they are what's known as a network effect, which means that they don't obey the laws of of free market economics. And I think that's true in many different situations. I would I would prefer to see. You know, I very much like to see governments um, regulating. We've seen that in this country uh, with the Academic Freedom Bill, where universities are going to be required to uphold their free speech obligations. And if they don't, they are going to be subject to fines. Uh, they can be sued. People can appeal around their universities. That's very much what we need. We need sort of government which is democratically elected and scrutinized by the media in a way these institutions aren't, the governments are unfortunately going to have to start reforming institutions like universities that are under their, their control, for example. Uh, you know, of course, you want to grant as much autonomy as you can, but the, but the problem is in a way that the uh, identity politics has colonized these institutions and warped them. It's, and it's really the sort of cultural left that has engaged this culture war. And so what the democratic politicians need to do is actually push back against 
the, this what I call emergent authoritarianism, this administrative authoritarianism coming from below can really only be countered by government regulations around something like free speech guaranteeing that you can't be discriminated against for your political beliefs, you can't be fired for your uh, for legal speech, for example, except under very narrow conditions. These are examples of the kind of legislation I'd like to see on social media where you have these large monopolies or uh, common carriers really, which is what they are. Um, I'd like to see their, you know, that their algorithms can be scrutinized by government regulators for, for example, political non-discrimination. That's it. That's an example of where uh, I think there is a role for government in trying to sort of rebalance what's going on in these institutions. I mean, if the institutions weren't being pushed by these radicals, then we could trust them and give them their autonomy. But when they are being politicized, there's no other alternative but to politicize them back the other way to achieve uh, something that that the society as a whole, and it's the same in the school system as well, it's something that the society as a whole is comfortable with um, democratically. Well, I don't think I can beat that call to action, but our second last question <laughs> that, that, that made, made me think of that movie, Red Dawn, holding up the, the gun, screaming Wolverines. So uh, <laughs> uh, our second last question, all of our guests have one thing in common, They've chosen to speak the truth and sometimes at great cost. You know, you know as well as anyone that sound methodology and data is not enough to, to shield you from attacks, censorship, and, and, and I don't think people talk about this enough, rejection from friends, family, and opportunities, which I've certainly experienced. So people listening to this, our audience, they're scared of the consequences of speaking the truth. Do you have any advice as someone who's, you know, crossed your own Rubicon, what, what, what right. can you tell us? Yeah, I think that you, you know, one door closes, another opens. You may lose, you know, certain things like the comfort of the staff room, um, but you will gain other uh, other networks, other, uh, other staff rooms, if you like. Um, and you, you kind of, and you'll be better off for it because you've been honest and true to yourself, right? And And I think if you try and I certainly wouldn't encourage people necessarily to uh, stick their head above the parapet if they've got a family to feed and whatever. I, I think you've got to make your own judgment call. But what I would say is that uh, it's it's going to be fine on the other end and probably better. <laughs> I like so. that. Yes. No, that's that's definitely a, 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 the, the place to end. I, I think some of, obviously we ask this for a lot of people because we want to get everyone's advice because uh, everyone's pretty much done what we could only dream of doing. And I mean, and you all rightly are concerned that our audience is going to go go to work the next day and just become like Tommy Robinson and just be like right. flipping, <laughs> flipping tables and saying, <laughs> "I'll tell you what." But no, I hope not. But, but mostly, people, our our, our uh, the people we know, just want to go to a meeting and meekly put up their hand and say, "Excuse me, but that that sounds a little bit mental." You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it's. It, you know, I think we haven't had this conversation yet, but I do think at some point there will need to be, more, you know, a discussion around the taboos that we hold as a society and whether those are irrational. Because I think they are. I think it's it's important to have a taboo against uh, racism and sexism and 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 whatever. I, I think that's important for very egregious actions, but. I actually think that we need to have a discussion about scaling these back and moderating them so that, you know, uh, so that fewer things are, are considered racist so that there's such a thing as forgiveness for a first offense 
so that the, the parameters of discussion are much wider and not so narrow around these issues. I think without having that discussion, it's going to be hard to, to have the kind of open discussion around the staff table that you talk about. Um, <laughs> so that is a, a, a whole area. I mean, the whole area of taboos, which are completely, it's not like jurisprudence where we sit down and we say, okay, what is the appropriate penalty for this particular action that will maximize the good? That's not how taboos have evolved. They've evolved through people staking claims and being able to enforce through a kind of violence, these taboos. And that's not actually a very rational way to establish rules and regulations around things like speech. And so I think we need to sort of move towards something a bit more rational and a little less uh, like the law of the jungle. But but we haven't even begun to have that discussion, I think. Mm. Well, we've got one last question for you, Eric, and that's we'd like to know what you're reading right now. What am I reading? I'm just looking over there at my bookshelf. Uh, and I, I guess I've got uh, Stephen Pinker's book on rationality that I'm reading. Um, I've got a, a library book from much earlier time uh, called The Dark Side of the Left, which is really, <laughs> which is which is all about different utopian uh, left-wing movements over history and and, and how they've, uh, I'm trying to remember if that's John Ellis who's written that, I think it is. But um, yeah, those are just a couple of books that I'm looking at right now. I, I really wish I had time to do more reading. I, I, I feel like, you know, I'd like to do more the way I did back in my, uh, some of the books I've written and, and PhD, uh, but I've been doing a lot of data analysis and writing more recently. I do read, but not as much as I'd like to. Well, I encourage everyone to read your book, White Shift. Uh, I thought it was an incredible book, Eric, and and it's funny you Thank should bring you. up Stephen Pinker. I got particularly uh, Chapter 7, I, I encourage everyone to read that book, which is sort of the uh, the genealogy of this this left modernism. I thought I thought there were echoes of Pinker Pinker's Better Angels in your in your book, and and I and I mean that, and I and I and I Thank encourage uh, people to 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 get it and to to get in this fight because it's real. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> uh, Eric, how, how can people how can people connect with you? Are you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on social media at uh, E-P-K-A-U-F-M. So that's my my handle. Uh, and also my website, www.snepssneps.net. So please check me out there. I'll post uh, links to all my talks and, and anything I produce. Um, check it out. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ricky. Excellent. Yeah, and we'll definitely put those links in our show notes for people who uh, want to check you out further. Thanks, Eric. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Ricky, for having me. No, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you.